You are listening to the Bellator Christi podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast. This is your host, yours truly, Brian Chilton. We thank you for joining us on today's podcast. I uh, missed being with you last week. Uh, in fact, we had uh, a lot of things going on. Uh, last week, and we'll get into that in just a few moments. I want to first of all say I'm very proud of my son, uh, Grayson. Uh, he was actually in part of a performance uh, with our local arts council, uh, Beauty and the Beast. He did a fantastic job, and so did uh, many uh, other individuals in, uh, in that cast. And so uh, our thanks to Jesse Grant, who was the uh, director of that marvelous, marvelous uh, play, Beauty and the Beast, and uh, to everyone who did such a fantastic job, I uh, want to thank them. That's the reason I wasn't here this past, uh, this past week, um, because we're in the midst of a very busy, very hectic uh, weekend. My son had uh, performances on Friday and uh, Sunday afternoon, and then Sunday, immediately after the last performance, uh, everyone pitched in and uh, took down the set. I mean, because you, you have to, once you're in a performance like that, you have to get everything down uh, and in preparation for the next individual or the next performance, the next act uh, that'll be coming uh, up. And so uh, a lot of good things there at Willingham Theater. So again, want to thank Jesse Grant. want to thank everybody who participated in uh, what was a marvelous uh, experience. My son thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, we this was the first time we had any experience with the theater, and uh, man, we I have to say we were we were addicted. <laughs> it was really a lot of good. There was really a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, and a lot of things. In fact, I, I want to talk about in just a few moments before we get into the main uh, topic of uh, today uh, in Acts chapter four. I want to give uh, an addition. If if you're part of our church community, you're going to get a little additional, a little extra uh, on, for Sunday's message. 
or from Sunday's message. And I want to talk about, uh, to, a little later in the podcast, I want to talk about uh, the, the blend of divine sovereignty and human freedom that we see in the book of Acts, and we especially see it Acts 4. In fact, it's strewn about the entire book of Acts thus far are several points of reference where you see divine sovereignty blended in the midst of human uh, the human freedom, a human's choosing one thing over the other, uh, God knowing what's going to take place. In fact, I think there's a pattern in Acts 4 that's just phenomenal. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. In fact, this was not the primary topic for today's podcast. I was in conversation with a good buddy of mine, Jason Klein. We're going to try to get him back on the podcast here very soon as uh, we, we have a lot of things going on uh, Jason and I do, but uh, want to get him back on the podcast very soon. But we were talking about this whole issue, and in fact, I told him just before coming on the air, I told him, I said, Jason, man, you, you have, due, due to our conversation, you have completely changed the topic of today's podcast. So uh, if, if you like it, that's great. If you don't, well, you can blame Jason for it. Just kidding. But uh, but I do want to talk about a little few lessons before we take a commercial break. We do have a lot of commercials uh, to on today's podcast, a lot of advertisements, things coming up that you need to know about in the Christian world as well. Uh, but last week, let me first of all say before I go any farther that the Bellator Christie podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com. We do encourage you to go to the website, uh, check out the articles that are available there, and, and by going to the website, we encourage you to subscribe by subscribing. Simply put in your email address, and by doing so, you'll receive all of the articles and uh, that comes from Bellator Christie, as well as as well as links to the podcast, every single podcast that becomes available in your inbox. And the best part of it is, it's absolutely free. So we encourage you to do just that. If you would like to uh, write an article uh, to be featured as a guest writer on BellatorChristie.com, go to Brian Chilton, C-H-I-L-T-O-N, at BellatorChristie.com. Let me know about your article, uh, where, what perspective you're coming from, and what you'd like to do. I'll give you the guidelines, and uh, it may be that you have your uh, article featured on the website as well. So we do encourage you to take advantage of that. Also, we'll let you know that the Bellator Christie podcast is uh, on several different channels that you can catch, podcatchers if you would like to call it that. We are on iTunes, TuneIn, uh, Stitcher as well now as Google Play. So we do encourage you to go uh, check us out there, subscribe and you'll catch uh, all the podcasts as they become available and you'll be able to take the podcast with you on the go. So if there's an episode you like and you want to record it to your device, uh, you can do that while you're taking a jog, maybe you're working out in the gym, or maybe you're just along for a ride, uh, going out for an evening ride. Whatever the case may be, you can take us along with you, and be sure to let other people know. Before we go to our commercial break, I would like to tell you about uh, five lessons I learned from the theater. Five lessons I think that the church could benefit learning from the theater. The theater was a very fascinating thing. and In fact, I'm going through, uh, I'm actually working ahead I have my first Ph.D. class starting in the last latter part of this month, the month of August. Uh, and so uh, I'm actually reading ahead, getting ahead on, on some of that, on some of the reading assignments. And I've been reading through a book called Faith and Learning, edited by David Dockery. And on one of the articles, it was mentioning how the arts, how really everything 
can glorify God. And now there are certain things in life that don't glorify God, but but through the arts we can glorify God. And and let me just say that the theater is an exceptional way. Now, not that's not to say that every play that comes across is a good play, because I'm not going to be so um, dense as to think that that's the case. But I do think that the that theater, the theatrical plays and performances can glorify God. That in some of the and many of the uh, stories that are told through the performances that are done, that you can find some element uh, that may uh, pertain to the Christian life or, or may pertain to the theology proper in general and maybe something to do with God or, or the life of Christ or, or uh, some element of sacrifice even. I think in the performance of Beauty and the Beast, uh, there was um, the, the issue there where, where it was Beast when he sacrificed himself, put himself in harm's way that Baal uh, started to truly love this, this prince who was, uh, who was under this curse. I think you can see the sacrifice, uh, the, the willingness of Christ. While he wasn't under a curse, he took our curse upon himself. Uh, you know, so you can see allusions there. You, you can see references to the, the Christian faith. Not saying that the author intended that to be the case, but I do think that we can, in many ways, glorify God through the arts and perform, performing arts as well. But there are five things I learned by taking, uh, by, by, by helping out, volunteering, being a parent of one of the performers, helping out. There are five lessons that I think that the church can learn from the theater. And number five, I think that is the value of hard work. I'm going to tell you something. I never knew that the theater was as hard of work as it was. In fact, the performers were often there sometimes five, sometimes seven days a week, working five hours a day in perfecting their craft. Uh, when you saw the level and degree of performance that was given on the days that they, they, that they uh, performed the shows, that didn't happen overnight. That came from serious hard work. And folks, I was thinking to myself, what if we as a church had the same type of work ethic that we find performers have in the theater? What if we were to devote ourselves uh, and, and take on that type of work ethic? Stop accepting the status quo. Stop accepting well enough, but, but really seek out to do the very best we can. So that's the fifth lesson I learned from the theater. The fourth lesson I learned uh, kind of corresponds with the level of hard work that was given in the theater, and that is the aspect of teamwork. Uh, everyone pulled their weight. Everyone was expected to pull their weight, and rightfully so. In the performance itself, everyone had a key role to make that thing go off. Um, the guy playing Gaston, he did his part. The guy playing, uh, the, the lady playing Belle did her part. The, the guy, the gentleman playing the Beast did his part. Uh, my son, he had varying roles in the play. Uh, others playing Chip and, and uh, Ladarku and, and, uh, or Ladark, however you say his name, and, and, and many others, the silly girls and many others. And by the way, there was a little girl, I, I won't mention her name, but she, she was a fan, she did a fantastic job. I think she may have been six, if I'm not mistaken. Talking about a dancer, boy, she she was really good. But uh, all of these all of these parts came together to make this play what it is. And it's like our youth director, our youth leader, uh, 
Ashley Gross said Sunday during the children's message, she said, you know, all of us have a part at God's table. All of us have different gifts and abilities. Not all of us are called to children's ministry. I'm telling you, I'm not called to that. Uh, you know, I love children. I love them with all my heart. But I don't have the ability to get children to go in the direction uh, that they're supposed to go. I worked in the school system at one time, and that was one of my weaknesses. It was difficult to get all these little youngins together <laughs> going in one direction. And, uh, you know, I guess I was a little too distracted myself because I enjoyed, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed, you know, uh, you know, helping them out with the work and everything like that. I got distracted. I lost track of time. So anyhow, you know, um, but but I enjoyed the time with the kids. And there's nothing like, uh, nothing like that. We we had a you know. But, but nonetheless, what I'm trying to say, I'm rambling. What I'm trying to say is, not everyone's called to children's ministry. Not everyone's called to youth ministry. I am certainly not called to the music ministry, I'm going to tell you that, but but we all have our gifts, we all have our abilities, and we need to come together. We need to learn that aspect of teamwork, and I think we would do well as a church to learn that. Three, the structure uh, that it had was, was very phenomenal. Everyone knew who was responsible for what. Okay, Everything was structured. And I think a lot of times... In church work, we, in fact, I was reading an article this this past week on lateral leadership and how it's difficult, like whenever you're in charge of something but yet you're answering to someone else, it's hard, it's difficult to know when you're supposed to take the initiative to do something and when you're overstepping your bounds. And I think we would do well in the church to have a better structure, uh, knowing who's in, in responsible for what having assigned roles and, and sticking with it. And I think the structure of it, I mean, it would if it would not have been able to go off the way it did in the theater without good structure, good solid structure. And I credit that to a wonderful director and wonderful staff who, who made that thing go off the way it did. And so um, there's that. I think number two, we also see the importance of community and belonging. And the numbers one and two kind of go into go and coincide together, but but there was a, almost like a family feel there. And and in fact, after it was over and done, you know, I miss seeing some of the folks who were there. I mean, because everyone really came together. In fact, I heard some people say that it was like a family. And you know, I couldn't have asked for a better group of people. To uh, to help my son through his first performance, I, he may I, I know he's he's going to do another one later this year. He has another performance later this year. Whether he pursues it after that, that's completely his decision. I'll support and love him either any direction he decides to go in that regard. But uh, you know, of course, I love and support him no matter what. Anyhow, he's my son. But the importance of family, the importance of belonging—that's that, something we need to have in the church. We need to make sure we strive. To, to make fee, people feel like they're part of the community, and you know, and that makes that makes a good strong bond that that is that is very powerful, and that um, that actually is contagious if you really if you to be quite honest. And then number one, I can't say this is true in all theaters because this is the only theatrical performance that I have ever been associated with, with which I've been associated. But the level of love and encouragement that that I seen with the performers uh, was phenomenal, and folks, we can't say I can't say enough about how important it is for us as Christian believers to love and encourage one another. We don't do enough of that. 
In fact, I was reading uh, a part of, I think it was a faith and learning book, that uh, someone said that when, when we fail to love others, then people have a right to question Christianity. Jesus said this much. He said, By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And beloved, we don't do that enough. Now, I'm not saying that this is a type of love where we excuse bad behavior because the loving thing to do would be to strive to help people to, to, to be better, to, to, to be uh, found in a solid relationship with Christ. But, you know, a lot of times we have allowed, well, not a lot of times, I just know for certain, we have allowed too much cynicism in the church these days. I know things are tough. I understand that. I understand completely, folks, that things are tough. But don't let the devil steal your joy, man. Lady, <laughs> God's been too good for us to focus on the negatives all the time, man. I mean, we we have so much to be for which we can be joyful. We have so much for which we can encourage. Why not focus a little bit more on that instead of on everything negative all the time? I mean, it's not healthy. And I think a lot of times, I you know, we can blame the devil for it. And I know the devil's behind is trying to steal our joy. But I think sometimes we're guilty of it to be quite blunt. We focus on so much of the negative that we fail to forget the great blessings that God has bestowed upon us. As believers, as Christians, we should be the most, the most encouraging people there are. And I had a wonderful, I had a chance to meet some wonderful Christian individuals. You know, my son was bragging about how some of these people were Christians. And we were talking afterwards and, you know, and said that, you know, even had we not been told that certain individuals were Christians, we could have told by their walk, by their talk, by the way they held themselves and conducted themselves that they were the Lord's. Sometimes you can just have that sixth sense where you can just tell that someone's a believer in Christ. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we return, we're going to talk about four lessons that uh, help us understand how God's sovereignty operates along incongruently with human freedom. You're listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. When I first wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, truth wasn't so much an issue as what is truth, can you know truth, but now it is. Some of the issues are different because of the internet, like the claim that Jesus doesn't even exist. Are there other Gospels that should have been in the Bible? Is Christianity just a copycat religion? So when we updated this, because I hear it from students so often, I thought we have to have the single best chapter that responds to this claim, and I think we do. We had to rewrite evidence demands a verdict because there's so much new evidence out there. It's like one Greek scholar said, the evidence now for the scriptures is like a tsunami, an avalanche that is hitting. And we want you to be aware of that. We want every young person, every student, every pastor, every professor to be aware of the new evidence out there. To understand not just what they believe, but why they believe it. Evidence that demands a verdict. On sale everywhere October 3rd, 2017. Go to hashtag true evidence. 
Now, God has called us to reach unbelievers and skeptics with the claims that Jesus Christ has on their lives. And typically it's heart issues that keep them from receiving Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. But people always have these intellectual issues. And it's hard to get to the heart issues until you get past the issues of the mind. The heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects. Which is why I'm thrilled that this year, Southern Evangelical Seminary is sponsoring an apologetics conference titled Pursuing a Faith That Thinks, October 13th and 14th in Charlotte. And this is your opportunity to be equipped by the best thinkers in the Christian community and how to get people past their intellectual barriers so that you can expose their heart issues and lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. National Conference on Christian Apologetics 2017 held October 13th and 14th at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more information, go to conference.ses.edu. The National Conference on Christian Apologetics, Defending a Faith That Thinks. Ladies and gentlemen, the following message is brought to you by Sean McDowell and the new Christian Standard Bible, Apologetic Study Bible. It might surprise you, but when my students come to me and tell me they have doubts, I don't freak out. I don't gasp in shock and horror. My first response is to say, that's fantastic. Why? I mean, as a high school teacher for years, I felt like I spent a lot of my energy just trying to persuade students, hey, you should think about whether the Bible's true or not. You should think about why God allows evil. We should wrestle with the question of evolution and creation and intelligent design. And some would care, some wouldn't. But as soon as a student comes to me and says they have doubts, I'll say, this is fantastic. Because now you're at a point in your life where you see the importance of these questions and you're willing to really wrestle with them and try to own for yourself what you believe is true. This is a good thing. It's okay. Maybe you have questions about whether Jesus really is God. Maybe you have questions about whether Jesus is the only way to get to God or why God allows evil or suffering or could there really be a place called hell? Rather than looking at this as negative, see this as an opportunity in your life and realize that you're not the only one who's had doubts. Many people have gone before you, had big questions and found satisfying answers because they were willing to seek after truth. But you know what? If you have doubts, guess what? You're not alone. In fact, you're in good company. A lot of people don't realize, but even the apostles had doubts even after they had spent their life with Jesus when he did miracles and even after they had seen him raised from the dead. In fact, at the end of Matthew 28, right when Jesus gives his great commission to the apostles to go out into the world and make disciples, it says that they worshiped Jesus, but some doubted. So don't beat yourself up if you have doubts. It's okay. It's great to have doubts. But what is not okay is to just let them go and to not seek and try to discover truth. In my own life, I grew up in a Christian home. I have parents who've worked for decades with a Christian ministry. When I was probably 19 or 20 years old, I started having some serious questions about what I believe. Some, not just intellectual doubts, but kind of emotional doubts. I remember sitting down with my father over coffee and I said, Dad, I want you to know something. I want to know what's true. But I'm not sure I really believe that Christianity is true, not knowing what he was going to say. He looked at me instantly. He goes, son, I think that's great. My first thought was, dad, did you hear anything that I just said? He said, I did hear you. He said, I think it's great because it sounds to me like you're committed to truth. You have to decide and know for yourself what you believe is true and live for it. He said, besides, I'm really confident that if you seek after truth, 
you'll be led back to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. So what do you do? I would take stock of your doubts. In fact, I would actually write down what those doubts are, try to get to the heart of them, and then go look for answers. Because what I've found, the older I get and the more I study and I teach, is that there are answers for the toughest questions that are raised against Christianity. Now, don't do it alone. Some people are tempted to separate themselves from their community, go find truth and come back. I think that's a mistake. Surround yourself with Christians, surround yourself with believers that can guide you and love you through this process. But if you seek after truth with all your heart, even if you have painful doubts, I am confident that it will lead you to the person of Jesus Christ. Go pick up your copy of the Apologetic Study Bible and the Apologetic Student Bible, available at bookstores everywhere. All right, we're back on the Bellator Christie podcast. Uh, we had a few more commercials there than we normally do during our segment, uh, but I am uh, privileged to be part of the launch team for Evidence That Demands a Verdict, written by uh, Sean and uh, Josh McDowell. That should be coming out October 3rd uh, of this year, 2017, as well. Uh, is I want to let you know about the uh, Apologetics Study Bible and the Apologetics Student Bible, which are both out now in bookstores everywhere. And then, of course, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics. Just a lot going on in the Christian community right now and uh, a lot to let you know about there as well. So I want to take a few moments uh, for the duration of our podcast to tell you about a topic that I actually wasn't prepared to even to discuss today. But it was through a conversation with my good friend Jason Klein that I uh, felt compelled, felt led to talk about this. One of the biggest mysteries uh, throughout the Christian, in Christian theology, if you will, is how it is that God is both sovereign and that people are free. And when we talk about people being free, we're not talking about complete freedom because we are all um, we all have things that manipulate us as much as we won't, don't, don't like to admit that. Uh, there are things that there are perhaps even biological aspects of us, uh, personality, personality aspects, uh, attributes that we hold, things of that nature that play into the decisions that we make. But we are free to make choices. You are, for instance, free to have listened to this podcast today. The big question is, is that we understand that God, being who He is, being all-powerful, being all-wise, being all-knowledgeable, is, uh, is, He is able to control all things, to know all things, to do all things within His character. Okay? And so, um, with that being the case, with God having that type of knowledge, and, we, and with the promises that we have in the fact that uh, all things, in Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. How does that flesh out? How is it that God is sovereign, and how is it that we as a people are free? Well, I honestly believe that, that one of the aspects uh, that, that go into this is the middle knowledge that God has. I, I believe, now some people will disagree, and that's fine if you don't agree with me, that's fine. But I think even by understanding God's knowledge of what people would do is is giving itself a credence to some degree of mental knowledge. And, and the two, the three forms of knowledge are known as one, 
uh, natural knowledge, the things, the way things could be. Uh, middle knowledge is the way things would be under certain circumstances, knowing the actions that people will choose, and then uh, free knowledge, which is the knowledge of the way things will be. That's that foreknowledge, okay? And it's interesting, you know, how things pan out, flesh out. You know, God's knowledge of the potential that people have, the actualities that will happen in, in what takes place, and the decisions of free agents placed in certain situations. I think that we find that in Scripture. And in fact, in this week's study, Jason and I were talking about that, about this very thing, I think you see four aspects that allude to the fact that God has the knowledge, the ability to know, intimate knowledge, not just some... Um, unintimate thing where he uh, or, or, or despondent thing where he just knows what's going to happen in the future and he doesn't have anything to do with it. No. This, this intimate knowledge that God has of each and every person. There are so many things that we can see this uh, to this. But I want to read a passage of Scripture from the CSB. This is a, this is a passage of Scripture that I'm going to be reading this Sunday for, for the message. And, and the more I dig in this passage of Scripture, the more I dig into Acts itself, the more I see this congruence that takes place between God's divine sovereignty and human freedom. In fact, we even see this in the prayer that the early disciples prayed. Now, to put this in context, we're in, in Acts 4, verses 23 and following. Put this in context. The, the day of Pentecost has happened. The, the disciples are out there preaching. They're teaching in the streets. They're preaching and teaching at the temple. And some of the religious authorities, as it were, did not like them out there preaching in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay, And so they threatened, the religious authorities threatened the early Christians. And, and this is where we pick up in verse 23. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Okay, now this is the prayer that we want to really, on which we want to really focus. We want to really place our focus. Master, that is a powerful word. That first term in the, in the prayer is amazing. Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, okay, now this is an aspect of revelation. This is how revelation takes place with the scriptures. Through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant. The Holy Spirit speaks to David. David puts it down on paper. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against the Messiah, his Messiah. Okay, this is coming a, a quotation from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will, now look, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Then in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. There are four things I'd like to look at as we take a look at how divine sovereignty and human freedom coalesce. 
coalesce. One is we see that, uh, that the disciples added the term master, which is uh, in Greek the term despota or despota. Uh, Daryl Bach says that they use a term for lordship that expresses God's sovereign position. The cognate English word despot conveys the idea of absolute authority, but the Greek word does not have the negative connotation of the English term. Uh, the term appears ten times in the New Testament, twice in Luke-Acts, which always, uh, which always uses it of God. Okay? It often refers to a human ruler. But in other words, it refers to an individual, a being, who has absolute power. So at the very first, we see that God is acknowledged to have absolute power, absolute control over all things. Okay? He, he is acknowledged to have absolute power and control over all things. The early disciples admitted this as much. And when we talk about God, this God that we serve, this God that we know, this God who has revealed himself to humanity, we understand that he is omnipotent, all-powerful, omnibenevolent, all-loving, that he is omniscient, all-knowing, he's omnisapient, all-wise. And he's also omnipresent, being able to being at all places at all times. Okay, this being the case, this is God as we understand Him, traditionally speaking. This is the God of all creation. And they say that this God, who is completely over all things, this God is the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. This God has power to do all things, to be at all places, to bring about a powerful end. So first of all, there's this acknowledgement by the early Christians of God's absolute power, of His absolute sovereignty. And that's what makes the next following step so very interesting as we uh, think about how these things pan together. We also see that He said, uh, that they prayed, that, that, that you said, the Father said, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our Father David your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against his Lord and Messiah. In other words, they're showing that God has this prognosco, which is a, uh, or prognosis, or prognosco in, in the Greek, which is talking about this foreknowledge that God has, this knowledge that God has that he holds of future events. Uh, we use the term prognosis uh, or, or an individual, who uh, a doctor who's giving a prognosis of a thing, or we use it of a, speaking of a meteorologist who is giving a forecast of, of a thing, something to, to take place. This, uh, again, Box says foreknowledge, prognosis, uh, prognosco, and foretelling, uh, prokatangelo, uh, and as well, are part of this understanding as well, or the, as well as pro uh, orizing or pro orizo, uh, which means uh, a plan or predestined plan. So we see these things working together. God has this prognosis where He know, knows what's going to take place. Okay, but now also look in verse twenty-seven. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They assembled together. This was a free choice, free actions performed by free agents. God did not force them to crucify Jesus. 
God did not force Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. That was his own free will action. But God knew ahead of time. In fact, we see Jesus. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Okay, Just like God knew that Pharaoh's heart was going to be hardened when God applied grace to his heart. Go back and read Exodus. God tells, God tells Moses... God tells Moses that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But how is it that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Read the text. It's when God applies grace. He provides a judgment, and the people are asking their gods and goddesses to remove the judgment from their land. These idols can't do it. They're unable to do it. So so finally, Pharaoh becomes desperate. He tells Moses to pray to his God, the true God, to relieve they're suffering to have grace and mercy upon them to remove the plague. God demonstrates grace to them by removing the plague. And so what happens after that? When God demonstrates grace and mercy to Pharaoh, Pharaoh willingly hardens his heart against God. God knew it was going to happen, and so it did. But it wasn't that God forced Pharaoh to harden his heart. Rather... Pharaoh hardened his heart in response to the good, gracious act of God. Now, God judged the people for the mistreatment of his people. God judged the Egyptians. And, and there are reasons to believe that there were some, maybe even the Egyptians, who came to trust in God through this process. But we won't get there. That's beyond the scope of this podcast. But here again, we see already three steps that God is understood to be the despota, that he is the absolute sovereign ruler. God knows as he prophesies through prophets speaking by the Holy Spirit through his servants of, of things that will come to be, this, this, um, this prognosis and this prokatangalo, uh, this, this foretelling that's going to take place, this foretelling, Okay, that things were going to take place. Then you have the free actions of people taking place that God knew would happen. But then look at verse 28. <laughs> Talk about another twist to this. I mean, the, <laughs> these verses are just saturated with deep theological truth. Verse 28. Go back to verse 27. That Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel... They assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Wow. (laughs) I mean, let that sink in. God is the absolute ruler. God knows what free agents are going to do. The free agents do according to what God knows that they would freely choose to do, and then in the end, all of that comes about according to God's preordained plan. Some people would say, well, does that mean that people are really free? And the answer is yes. Because God knows something's going to take place, uh, does it mean that a person loses that ability to choose what God knew that they were going to choose anyhow. For instance, if a person, I mean, let's just think about this. God having the type of knowledge that he does, say he knows that you have the choice to choose chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream. 
Say you love chocolate ice cream and normally you would get chocolate ice cream. But you think, I'm going to fool God this time and I'm going to choose vanilla ice cream. In fact, I'm going to go outside the boundaries and sneak in some strawberry ice cream so that he would never know what I was going to do. Guess what? God knew that you would choose strawberry ice cream by, by knowing beforehand that you were going to bring in the strawberry ice cream. So he knew your action before you ever even chose it. But you freely and willingly chose it. This absolutely is part of the mystery of God's knowledge. It's absolutely mysterious. Now, this doesn't mean that a person loses their free ability to choose X versus Y. Of course, we have that ability to do so. But it also means that God knows every choice. And I believe this is only answerable to a form of middle knowledge. Whether it's the Molinist version or whether it's the Congruist version, uh, that, that's subject to interpretation. But, but the fact that there is this type of knowledge, I think, it is, I, I honestly believe, is scriptural. I honestly believe it's scriptural that God knows what free agents will willingly choose. And that is absolutely phenomenal. Now, in addition to this, a lot of times where this we really find an apologetic in this issue is when we think about why things happen to us sometimes the way they do. And we often go back to the book of Job to, to, uh, and to look at the response that God gives Job. And, and the response God gives Job isn't one that we particularly like. Because God tells Job when he's undergoing, under, enduring these difficult things that he does, he says basically, Job, were you there when I created everything? Were you there when I set the foundation of the world in place? Were you really there? Can you really can you really handle this these two big beasts known as the Bohemoth and the Leviathan? Were you there when I set the Orion, the Pleiades in place and the as constellations? Were you really there, Job? And of course the answer is of course he wasn't. Now here's the point I'm trying to simply make in this, as it as it relates to the problem of evil. Can a good loving God Good, loving, powerful God coexists in a world of evil, and the answer is yes, if that loving God has good ends. If it would have been better for us to have gone through the difficulties we have in life, even as extreme as they are, to bring about a better end. And the answer, and, and here's, a part, here's a part of the problem with us trying to understand this issue. We don't have the knowledge and could never have the knowledge that God does. Because understand that to have the level of knowledge that God does in this regard would mean that we would have to know every person who's lived throughout history, every, every action, every decision they've made, and every counterfactual that they could have made. That is, the things they could have chosen rather than the things that they did. We would have to have the knowledge of knowing what they chose to do rather than what they could have chosen to do. We would have to know every circumstance related upon their life and every consequence that would have come about through their life. We would have had to know this for every single human being throughout the process of all creation. Because every action has a reaction. Every action has a consequence, good or bad. Okay? Every action affects someone or something somewhere along time. Now, let's take this a step further. Not only would you have to have that type of knowledge of what every person has done or ever could do 
and, and what the consequences of that would be. But you'd also have to know the entire universe, and, and, and despite what astrophysicists and cosmologists want you to think, they don't know everything about the universe, nor do I think they ever can or ever could. They can know a lot about it, and humanity has learned a lot about it, and I'm not dismissing it. I'm just simply saying we can never, I don't think, ever have complete knowledge of everything. And I think it's very arrogant for us to think that we ever could, that we ever can. But we would have to have absolute knowledge of the universe, the way it's operated since the beginning, before the beginning, when it came into being. We would have to know everything about every molecular structure, everything about every quantum physics, every quark, every boson. We'd have to have knowledge about every uh, aspect of, uh, of dark energy, dark matter. We'd have to have every uh, knowledge about the, the, the galaxies, the planets, the stars, every star in the known galaxy, in the known universe. We'd have to ha have knowledge about every single thing, about how it operated, we would have to have an intimate level, a degree of knowledge on how every molecule operates in every aspect and every point in time and how that affects every uh, chemical reaction, how that is going to respond positive or negative. We have to know how all that's going to respond and how it integrates into our own point in time in our own life. We would not only have to know that wisdom uh, that knowledge aspect, the omni, omni, omniscience of God. But we would also have to know, we would also have to have omnisapiens, which is all wisdom. Having the knowledge of how these things operate is even a little different about knowing how to use them to bring out an ultimate end. So the point I'm simply trying to make is, is this. Through God's knowledge, we see in the book of Acts chapter 4 that God knows... He's the absolute master and, and, and controller of all things. He knows all things. He knows the, the things that uh, could happen. He knows the things that will happen and the things that would happen under certain circumstances. So what I'm trying to simply say is you may not understand why you're enduring some of the things that you may be going through in life. But understand, God does. And despite the difficulties you may have faced... Romans 8.28 still stands true. doesn't mean that everything you, that occurs in your life is going to be good. But it means that God is working all those things in your life to bring out an ultimate good in the end. All things work together for good, not to everyone, but to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Those who with a willing heart have responded to His grace and live a life for Him. Folks, I'm going to tell you, you may be going through some difficulties in life, but it may be that having gone through those difficulties, that you may spur the faith of someone else, or that God, through you rather, spurs the faith to accept and receive Christ in another person. We just don't have that type of knowledge to know why everything happens the way it does. But understand, if we can trust God in the things we know, then we can also trust God and the things we don't know. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. This is Brian Chilton saying God bless, and we'll see you back the next time we step into the arena of ideas.
expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Michaela Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. We're looking for people from all around this great nation who believe this is a great nation. We're looking for the best and the brightest and people who believe in goodness and honesty and liberty. If we've just described you, enroll in Liberty University. Online, we've been doing it as long as anyone. Our campus, just beautiful. If you believe in liberty, know that liberty believes in you. Liberty University, online or on campus. To find out more, go to liberty.edu or call 855 466 9220